last week, we started to a giant crowd of Sioux. So I was hoping that some of you might listen. I mean, you know, everybody's gone. I don't know what the deal is. Might listen because that was sort of the foundation of what we'll kind of need to know as we go. Um, we good? So <coughs> I just put that up there. So the, the word Torah, as I'm sure you guys know, is translated in English as law. And it uh, kind of looks like that. And tor- Torah is the way they pronounce it. Uh, really means instruction or direction or um, like the key or it doesn't really mean law. I mean, it doesn't even close to mean law. And, and the whole idea of how it got translated as law is, is uh, unfortunate to say the least. But one of the things we talked about last week is it's important to understand that there is a real tangible enemy of God. And he really is trying to do harm in any way possible that he can and cause us to believe things that aren't true or, or hide things that are true. And he has, you know, limited power. But it's, it's worth understanding that there is this force out there that does whatever they can do ever since the time of the garden to do the same thing, to confuse the word of God. So it's not a big mystery how these words came to be mistranslated, um, but it's, it's unfortunate nonetheless. This word Torah comes from the word Yara, which I think is probably already up there, up there. And the word Yara, according to the ancient Hebrew lexicon of the Bible, uh, means to throw a finger in the direction you should walk. So it's, it's a... <coughs> It's a direction. So you're asking how to get somewhere and somebody answers you by saying at the third rock, turn left and at the sycamore tree, go straight, you know, giving you directions to get to where you want to go. So this word Torah comes from Yara and that's really what it is. The, the Torah, Torah, these rules, the 613 that the rabbis have identified are not laws in the sense that if you break them, there is the potential for immediate punishment. Like we think of a law, these are directions, they're keys, they're instructions. This is what your life would look like if you were following the things the Lord um, was asking you to do. And I sort of see the, uh, the, the Torah, these commandments, as like we might look at cliff notes, right? It's just a scaled down version of the things you need to know to pass the test. So if, you, if your goal is to get to all eternity with Yahweh, the, the God of this Bible, if that's your destination, then the instructions on how to get there are these, the Torah, it's those instructions. They're not laws or rules or um, anything like that. And so many people, I mean, in this country especially, not so much maybe in other countries, but in this country, we tend to believe that we're good with God because we belong to a particular church or 
we follow a particular pastor or we donated enough money or we think there are, you know, sort of these extraneous reasons how we can get to heaven. And the Bible is reasonably clear that that's not true. And if you ask most Christians, they would deny that that's what they think. But I would suggest that is what they think. And you, it's, it's fairly easy to determine that by talking to people. And, you know, the Catholics don't believe anybody else could be saved. And the Methodist thinks they're the only ones there. And the Jehovah's have got the answer. And the Mormons are the ones. And everybody's got their deal. And yet none of them actually bother to look. Well, I shouldn't say it like that. They do, they do bother to look. They just don't seem to want to understand the, the instructions of the Lord. And it's not as though he didn't provide them. He gave them in, in spades. Um, it's interesting when we, when we go to uh, the New Testament, when we go to Greek, this word Torah, which means instruction, is translated as a Greek word nomos, and we've talked about this before. And one of the meanings of nomos is the cross-fencing in a pasture that keeps the livestock safe, which is actually a pretty good definition of Torah. It's the instructions that keep the livestock, the sheep, safe. And then when it was translated into English, it became the word law. And law has a connotation that it's, uh, it's a law. You can't break it. It has to be this way. And that puts us in an interesting spot when we read some of these instructions because they don't appear on the surface to be something we would be comfortable doing. So if that's the case, if for instance it says you can stone your child if he mouths off, we may not, I mean there are days we would do it, but for the most part we're not comfortable with that sort of idea, so we tend to discount these instructions. And that's for two reasons. One is because we didn't understand what was said. And two, we're trying to filter it through, through us. What would I do if I was God? And it doesn't matter what we would do if we were God. We're not God. And God has a different understanding and a little higher pay grade than we have. So it would be, uh, I think, worth our time to see what it is he says, especially when we encounter some of these alleged commandments or these instructions that when we read it in English, they don't sound that godly. And they don't sound like something we would choose to obey. And when we encounter those, I think that should be, that should be the time that we stop and say, well, I know God is for us. God loves us. God is not going to do something against us if I'm reading this and it seems to say something like that, there has to be a reason for it. Either I don't understand the language or I don't understand the wording or the context or something. There has to be something in there I'm missing. And if you approach the Bible with that attitude, I think you have a much better chance of learning what God actually said and having it affect your life. If you just read what, what you say in English and what your you know dad's grandmother's aunt's uncle's dog told you, you're... you're you're just in the garden with a Nakash who's trying to convince you that, oh, no, no, it didn't really say that when it actually did. So it's interesting in Greek when it talks about uh, unlawful and it refers to people who are sort of outside the bounds of God and the people that we choose or hope not to be, the word is unnomos, 
It's the reverse of nomos. So the word means, literally means without Torah. So those people who are lawless and unsaved and unchurched and not following, those people are without Torah. That's that word, anomos. So if you're thinking about the pasture, this cross-fencing in the pasture, and we sort of more or less kind of live in or near the country, and a lot of us have experience with dogs and cats and horses and cows and bulls and whatnot. And most of the time, the cross fencing in this pasture could easily be knocked down by the horse or the cow or the bull if they chose to do it. But they don't choose to do it. They choose to stay in the little pasture that's been provided for them where it's safe and they're fed and protected. And in some very real sense, if this cross-fencing, this word nomos is, I mean, it's the Greek translation of the word Torah, if these are the instructions of God and these are the instructions that keep us safe and provided for within the pasture, we should desire to know what those are, I would think. And that's what we're going to be talking about. Last week we talked about one of those uh, commandments that many of us struggle with or have struggled with and it says uh, we are required to honor our parents so that our days be long and that's great if you have good parents you know Dan doesn't have a problem honoring his parents they seem to be excellent people but many parents aren't <clears throat> or one parent isn't and it's one of these things where okay God says I have to honor them and you, tr you go through all this mental exercise, bless you, to try to determine how that can be godly. How can honoring a parent who, who, who knows, they might be child molesters, bank robbers, murderers, or, you know, they might just be nasty, ugly people. How, how can it benefit God for us to honor that guy? And then we start going through all these mental calculations and permutations, and the only end result of that is going to be, well, God's wrong. Well, no. What, what's actually going on is you're not understanding the commandment. And as we talked about last week, this particular commandment about honoring our parent, if you read the commandment, it says honor your parents so that your days may be long. It doesn't say anything about honoring them because they've been good parents or they've, they're deserving of it, or it just says to do it. And when you think it through, you're not honoring your parents because they were good. You're honoring the children because they were good, because they were willing to do what God asked them to do, especially in circumstances that, you know, our flesh wouldn't. We might have one of those parents that, how is, how is honoring them giving glory to God? Well, it's not, but obeying God is giving glory to him. And that's how so many of these commandments are. It's not about the person. It's not about the parent in this one. It's about you. What's your relationship? What's my relationship with the Lord? Am I willing to simply do what he asks for reasons I'm not even clear on? He said, honor your parents so that your days may be long. It's not about the parents at all. It's about us. And so many of the commandments, um, probably a lot of them, are that way. And we need to look at I don't know how many commandments we're going to go through until we get sick of commandments. 
but you need to look at these commandments pretty much like the rest of the Bible in the sense that it's, it's not about them. It's not about the event or the circumstance or the person or the patriarch or the family or the giraffe or whatever you're reading about in Scripture. It's always about you. How are you going to do it? We'll read these commandments and say, oh, Billy Bob should read that. He should be doing this. It doesn't matter what Billy Bob does because a commandment's not for Billy Bob. It's for you. Let Billy Bob read it on his own and find out what's for him. And as we read these instructions and these uh, judgments and statutes called commands, called laws, that's how we need to look at them. It's what is it for me? What would it take for me to do what God asks and honor my parents? And how would that look? You know, I don't need to put them on a pedestal and give them the father of the year, although my father's pretty cool. My mother was a little problematical. But that's not what it's asking you to do. Read, read the command. Look at what it says. Go back to the language and find out what it meant. Look at the culture. Look at the context. If you're having difficulty with the commandments, some of them are, you know, pretty straightforward. It just is what it is. You do that. Everybody can agree. Excellent. You move on to the next one. But you don't get very far before you run into one that's like, oh, I didn't get that. That doesn't make sense. And those are the ones that we want to talk about. Last week, I was talking about when I worked in Santa Barbara, the, uh, my glass company across the street was this uh, a karate place. Two, a little oriental couple ran this, and they would do four times a year, I think they would do these cotillions. Where the, you know, I don't know how old the kids were, 10, 12, you know, something like that. Where they would come, and they'd have, you know, the boys would have their jackets and their shirts and cufflinks and slacks and good shoes, and the girls would have their dresses and finery. And they would certainly teach them how to dance and they would teach them proper etiquette this is how you act this is what you say this is how you move but the more important part of it i think was it was teaching you how to be a citizen because you every child had to dance at some point during the three or four days you know four times a year or whatever it was with, with all you know with each of the other children and you could see because at that age a lot of the girls tower over the boys they're taller they're heavier they're smarter they're faster they're stronger and you could see that some of the guys weren't that interested in dancing with that girl because maybe she had a bit of an attitude and she was way big and she was from a different school and nobody liked her. Those are the ones how you, that, that, that help you learn how to act. Because it's easy to dance with your friend who lives next door that you've gone to school with since you were young. It's harder to dance and act appropriately with this other person that maybe you don't even like. And that's what these would do. You had to treat every person the same. And that's what, these, that's what the Torah is. It's instructions on how to live. If you do these things, if you honor your parents, even though maybe your parents were not honorable, it doesn't have anything to do with your parents. It has everything to do with you. And that's what they taught at the cotillions, and that's what they're teaching here. And so as we, as we continue to go through some of these things, you know, keep... Keep the, the foundations in mind that it's, how does this affect me? What am I missing? When I read a, a, a commandment that just sounds wrong, why? Stop and find out why. Those are the ones that you learn. Those are the kids that you don't want to dance with. Those are the people you don't like, but you still have to treat them the same. They would offer their hands. You would, you know, show the lady by, you know, your hand in the small of her back and I mean, you see these 10, 12, I don't know, 14-year-old boys and girls acting like adults. 
Well, that's the purpose of the Torah, is to help us act like adults in front of the Lord. So we read it in English as Ten Commandments. Um, it doesn't actually say that. The word for commandments is the word mitzvah, which you know many of you know it means good work. The words, when we read this, like we're going to read in uh, Exodus 20, that's the classic list of the Ten Commandments, it says the word. That's what it is, is the bar. It's word. So it's really the, the ten words. They're not commandments at all. They were never intended to be commandments, laws, rules, regulations. They were intended to be, just like I would watch those kids at the cotillion, they were intended to be instructions on how to live, proper etiquette, how to conduct yourself in society, how to be a good member of the neighborhood. And that's what, and I guess they don't do that anymore, but that's what these cotillions, these schools would teach you know, they didn't care that they taught them to dance. I'm sure that was a good thing. The boys learned how to put ties on and tie ties, and they learned what cufflinks were and how to keep their shoes shining on. All that's good. But what they really learned was how to be a citizen. And we don't do that anymore. But that's what the commandments are. So, so it's not, you know, it's not something we must obey or else. It's something that we should choose to obey. And God is not looking for people who come to him because they feel threatened by who he is or what he could do. He's looking for people who will come to him because they want to come to him. And that, again, is what uh, both the cotillion and the, and the Torah teaches. But there's one thing in scripture that Mark identifies that can overrule the word of God. And you say, oh my gosh, there's nothing, you know, nothing can overrule the word of God. But Mark says in chapter 7, verse 13, uh, talking about what it is, he says, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which you have delivered. And many such things like this you, that you do. It's this word paradosis, and it means to give up or surrender. Man's traditions can cause us to surrender God's word. And we look at, it's an easy thing to do. When you look at what the Bible says, and then you look at what we do, and I don't necessarily mean we as in, although we each have things, but mainline churches and stuff, and you wonder, how is it possible? Did they not read the Bible? Did they not see? And of course, it's easy to say they. There's things like that in all of us. But do they not see their, they've substituted man's wisdom for the word of God? And that's what, um, that's what the Torah, that's what the cotillions are there to try to prevent. Is if you follow his rules, his Torah, his instructions, his judgments, the direction he throws the finger and the way you should walk, if you follow those things instead of man's tradition, you're going to find yourself much closer to the Lord. So, uh, like I said, some of the instructions are easy to understand and others not so much. And we will run across some that are almost impossible for us to uh, even make a case that this is good. And as, you know, as I've considered this for many years, the only thing I can figure is there are some things that the Lord gives us that can only be accepted on faith. 
We just have to believe that what he says is true because we can't make a case for it in our lives, in our culture, in our language. It just doesn't seem right. But you're, he's putting us all in a place. I think he's been putting us all in this place since the time of the garden, since we were cast from the garden. From that day until the last day, he's been working to separate the flock. There's going to be sheep on one side, goats on the other. And everything has been designed, if you want to say it that way, to, to make that separation. Do you want to choose the side of the sheep? Or do you want to choose the side of the goats? And the closer we get to the end, the more obvious that choice is going to come or going to be. And we will have to choose because when, that, that eventually, and maybe not long, there will be a day that will be the last day. There will be all these things that have happened and we, we will have had ample opportunity to choose. And there will be people who say, well, I didn't know. How did I know? How, how could you know? Well, th this is how you know. He's given instructions for thousands of years leading up to the time when we're alive, I think, till the end, or certainly my daughter and her generation. Those instructions have been there. And you can either choose to follow them, you can choose to look into them and understand them, or you can just choose to think that, which is what most Christians do today, that they're just not applicable to us. I'm going to do what I think is right. And I'm just here to tell you, when that last day comes, there will be a lot of people who are not camping with God. They, they, they have no idea how to camp with God. They don't know his instructions or the things he desires. They don't know what our, our heart is supposed to look like to be with him because we've never bothered to look at what he said. So when you're talking about this and there will be many more of these, but you're talking about, like last week, we talked about the commandment of honoring your parents. There will be uh, people who will be turned off by that. How can you honor a parent like mine? And they'll immediately dismiss everything of the Lord. Or, you know, you pick any commandment, you, you know, you get it all the time. Oh, the Old Testament is full of murder. They just went and wiped out entire nations. Uh-huh, that's true. But if you don't understand the background and the mercy and the grace that had been given for 400 years, then it looks like he's an evil, wicked, terrible God. But when you look at it for real and find out his grace is almost boundless and his mercy and love is far more than we can even contemplate, generation after generation after generation after generation have been given mercy and grace to the point where their iniquity is finally through. And they knew what the end would be. We know what the end is going to be. And God makes it so. But it's not because he wanted to do that. It's because they chose to do that. So are we going to be angry at God when we're <clears throat> given some instruction like honor your parents when your parents were awful? Or, or, you know, we'll get plenty more as we go down the road that you can pick on. But, you know, that you've, always, you've heard people say, oh, God's like that. I don't want to be involved. Well, he, they've never even taken the time to learn. They didn't want to be involved in the first place. Fine, that's their choice. God still has grace and mercy, and they could be 60, 70, 80 years old saying, I don't want to get involved in that. He's given them 60, 70, 80 years to come to the point where they can say, oh, I, I do want that. And if they said that, he would accept them. There's no, oh, you know, you lived 80 years, terrible. You got 80 years penance coming. It doesn't work that way. 
once we accept and our heart turns to him, his heart turns to us and that is that. So the fact that people can be that old, still hate God, it's just a picture of God's grace, but the time will come when that grace expires. And there's no possible way you can look at that and say God is not merciful, or God is mean or evil, or I don't want to follow a God like that. You absolutely want to follow a God that has that kind of mercy and grace and love, that will let these guys spit in his face for 80 years and would still accept them the moment they turned their heart to him. How many other gods or leaders or whatever would do that? And I would suggest not many. So the Bible, uh, the rabbis tell us there are 613 uh, commandments. <laughs> yeah, great. Pick a number. You know, they're, they're, the Bible is full. I would suggest there are thousands of commandments, but they needed to get to 613 because it's a number that had meaning, and we covered that last week. So they came up with 613. And if the, most of the lists we read were written by a guy called Rombaum, but if you look at somebody else's list, they're a little different. Uh, even Rombaum's list, I find several of them are repeated and uh, many of them are missed. The very first, well, it's not even the first commandment, but one of the first commandments is go forth and multiply. But you don't see that in any of Rombaum's or any of these other guys' lists. And that's, that's the first command the Lord gave us, really, was to go forth and multiply. Because the enemies would, and we know for a fact that the enemies of God, you know, they have 10, 15, 20 kids, and Christians, oh no, you know, two, three, maybe four. Four is a big fellow, or gosh, how are we going to do that? You know, we don't. So right out of the gate, most people who follow the Lord are not following the Lord. Because, I mean, we didn't. I didn't know, you know. We can't afford 16 children. I don't think she would have wanted, you know, 16 children. But anyway, um, so you have to keep an open mind to this stuff. So we're going to be talking about commandments that are on the list, maybe, and commandments that aren't on the list. Um, and we'll just, you know, we'll just see how it goes. The, this list that Rambam provides or any of the rabbis provide, sometimes people, particularly uh, Jews, would look at that list as, uh, have I done these? You know, did, did I keep this many? Or how well did I keep them? Or... And it's not, got nothing to do with it. You don't get gold stars when you, you know, do one and, and they take a star away when you don't do one. It, all of these, the, the 613 that they identify and all the rest are nothing more than instructions. They're keys, they're guidelines. They're, this is what your life would look like if you wanted to draw near to me. If you were to come <clears throat> camp with me, remember the word Cain, grace, if you were to come camp with me, you need, by definition, if you're going to camp with somebody, you need to agree with them. So these things are the guidelines on how, uh, on how we agree with them. Paul in Romans chapter 12 uh, said this, and you are all familiar with this, I'm sure. And be not conformed unto this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect the will of God. And what are those things he's talking about? You know, don't be conformed to the world. Okay, don't believe the things of the world. Don't let your mind be taken there, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How does that happen? What, what, what are you using to renew your mind? Does God just stand over you in the room and, ooh, you know, chant something, and all of a sudden your mind is fresh and new again? 
the renewing of your mind is the truth of God. You have to fill your mind with the truth of God. Those are the instructions and the judgments and the statutes and the commands of the Lord. If you don't have those, you have no basis to know what's right and what's wrong. <clears throat> Paul tells us, if you recall, uh, that the Torah has given us to help us identify sin, right? We're given the things that the Lord considers to be good and honest and truthful and, and worth having. And if the things that you see or your life or your world or whatever doesn't jive with those, we have two options. You choose to disagree with the words of the Lord and say, oh, no, no, that's, you know, that's a different culture, different time. It meant different things. We don't do that today or you choose to embrace them. And if you want to renew your mind, you need to embrace these things. But the Torah is also given, you know, as, as a signpost with which we can measure sin. God says this, if you see that, then you know that's bad, that's sin. Well, it's also given as a guidepost to see what's good. Your life should emulate those things. Does it have to do every single one of them every time? No, you're expected to fail. It says, it says in the Bible, no one is good. No one. doesn't matter how good you think you are, or maybe you really are good. You're never going to be that good. You're going to fail at things, and that does not disqualify you from camping with the Lord, from eternity with God. What disqualifies you is a heart that says, oh, no, 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 those things aren't for me, because those things are for you. So the idea of... Uh, not being able to camp with God is the idea of spiritual separation from God, which is the place you don't want to go. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 18. But if ye be led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revilings, and such like. Of them which I tell you before, as I have also told you in times past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And there are a number of verses, particularly from Paul, that say things like this, you are not under the law. And people read that and they think, oh, see, that says right there, we don't have to obey the Torah. That's, that's, not, that's exactly the opposite of what it's saying. Because the Torah is a picture of how you get a spiritual life, what a life with, led by the Spirit would look like. It would follow these same things. You're not doing it to be saved. You're doing it because you were saved. And that's exactly what Paul says here and in 50 other places. And people will tell you, oh, see, Paul himself said we don't have to believe the Torah. <clears throat> and if you read it, even halfway thoughtfully, you will understand that that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is the opposite of it. That the law, the Torah, the commandments, the instructions, and the God lead you to a place of being led by the Spirit. And that's how you're saved. Your heart is changed and you're led by the Spirit of God. And it's a difficult idea for 21st century American Christians to grasp. 
we don't want to, I mean, when you get down to it, I think this is the deal. We don't want to be led by the Spirit. We want somebody to say, oh, you're a good person, you're golden. It's what you think is good, not what God thinks is good. And if you're led by the Spirit, they will be the same thing. But if you're not led by the Spirit, all it is is your opinion on what's good. And all that will do is separate you from the Lord. So if you get one thing out of this, I want you to remember, maybe even memorize, we keep the Torah not to be saved, but because we are saved. The only way you can have a heart for God and camp with him, live with him, become one of his, is because you want to do the things he asks you to do. And that's why this idea of marriage and a man and a woman <clears throat> is the same picture as our relationship with the Lord. You do things for your wife because you want to do them, because she's your wife or your wife or your husband that they would never do for somebody else. But it's, be, it, it's because, you know, the wife loves the husband or the husband loves the wife or whatever it is. They are, they want to do those. They really do want to do those things. And I wouldn't do it for the neighbors, you know. It's, I mean, I'll help them out as I can, but, you know, I'm not going to, do all that stuff, and that's the relationship we should have with God, and that's the relationship we should have with the Torah, because those are the guidelines that he has asked us to do. And if we follow those, uh, we'll be in a much better spot. Okay. Um, I guess, and again, you, you talk to many Christians, and they tend to be of the belief that Yeshua, or Jesus as they call him, came to do away with the law. That the law is bondage and that we are not saved by works. Well, that's true. The law is bondage and we're not saved by works. And we cannot work our way to heaven. The only way we can get there is to have a heart to be there. And, it, and it's, it, so many people can't seem to make the distinction about, um, you know, we do it not to be saved, but because we are saved. The law is bondage. But this isn't the law. This is the direction that we should walk. This is what your life should look like. This is what your life will look like because your mind will be transformed because your heart will be transformed. But if you immediately just cast out the baby with the bathwater, you have no way to know. So last week we looked at, uh, when, you, when you read the alleged 10 commandments, you'll read the first four, first five, six maybe, and there's a whole explanation with each one. And then you get to these four, and it just says, uh, Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. Well, it's because in Hebrew, that's all one. And, and we talked about this last week. That's all one idea. That's, that's all this idea of murder. And, you know, get the tape, listen to it last week to see that. So tonight, I want to start up at the top, at, at Exodus chapter 20. And the first uh, couple of verses... Exodus chapter 20, verses 1, 2, and 3, I think, goes something like this. And God spake 
all these words, not commandments, words, debar. God spake all these words saying, I am Jehovah Elohim, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and you shall have no other gods before me. So it's, it, uh, it says Elohim debar. So Elohim is the generic word for God. Just doesn't even have to be capital. It's just God. If you're a God of anything, the God of the carnival, the God of the universe, it all falls under Elohim. The bar is the word for words. So this God, word, and then the word has the Aleph Tav on it, which is the fingerprint of God. Kol means all. It means the whole banana, all, all things. Uh, Aliyah, uh, then it says Debar again. So we're back to the, to the words. God spake, which is Debar, all, kol, Aliyah, these, words, again, Amar. And Amar means appointed. So it, it's, it's God's word, and there's the Aleph Tav, his thumbprint on it, which is the whole deal. God's words are appointed. And, it, and then it says, I am Jehovah Elohim. Okay, now that's different. Jehovah Elohim is the God of all Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel. He's, he's our God. He's what we call the Father. So it's identifying that, okay, this God we're talking about is this God. It's our God. So he, this God spoke all these words and appointed this. It's our God, Jehovah Elohim, which brought thee out of the land of the world of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. So we have to recognize he did that. That's a fact. He brought it, you know, it doesn't mention that he first brought us in and how it, you know, the whole story of how he got there. But he brought us out. And that's the message, right? He brought us out of the world, which is what Egypt always means, and out of bondage. And so the obvious answer is have no other gods. It says Elohim. Any gods, little gods, big gods, God of the carnival, the God of the bank, the God of the universe. It's all the same. No gods. Don't have any gods. Don't have anything you call a God before me. I am the guy. This Jehovah Elohim is the guy. So that's how this starts. And that's what we call the first commandment, the first instruction. And of course, it's not the first instruction. It's you know, like the 43rd instruction, but that's the way we read it. You see the Ten Commandments written places, that's the number one commandment, right? Have no other gods before me. But that's the story of it, is have no gods. And, you know, it can be the god of sex, money, power, your job, your car, your house, whatever it is that attracts you and takes your time and interest and mind, don't. First, and it says before me, it doesn't say you can't actually have them, but they have to be in the right order, right? If you have God first, if you have the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of all Israel, the God, Yahweh, the guy that we know, the guy that this book is all about, if he is first and pre, one of those words, uh, in our lives, fine. Then have all those other things you're interested in. You know, all of us here have varied interests and, and that's on purpose. He created us that way. We're drawn to certain things. And I think it's on purpose because you just take this little room, our little tentacles go out in so many different directions and all of those people we contact, what's God's desire? To have 
his people out in the world doing the work of God, the only way that's going to happen is if he is preeminent in our hearts. And then we go out and we teach class. We work on the cars. We, you've done everything. You do whatever it is you do, the real estate stuff. I mean, it doesn't matter. It's just whatever, whatever our lives, whichever direction they went, whatever our interests are, that's how God created us. And as long as God is first, all these little gods are fine because we go out there and we, you know, you deal with everything you deal with at school and you deal with finding a new fender on a ridiculously easy car that should be simple. And you know, all of this stuff, that's, that's exactly how he had it planned. So don't read this as though we can't have all these other little gods. There are things in our lives that interest us, that excite us, that we're good at, that we want to do. And don't shut all that down because, oh, you know, God says have, have no idols before me. Just keep God in front and then go do what it is you're compelled to do and take God with you. And that's what God wants you to do. This is, I mean, knowing this is, is a key to freedom because I know so many people that, oh, I don't want to, you know, get rich or do this or they secretly think that this is a terrible thing because they've, you know, they've made a success of their business or, you know, whatever. No, that's absolutely not true. Be who you're created to be. Just make sure that Yahweh Elohim is the guy that's leading you. He's in front. So when you talk to whoever it is you're going to talk to every day, God is in front of you. And you can have these little it's unfortunate that it's referred to as little gods or little idols sometimes because we say, oh, I don't have idols. Well, of course we have idols. We all have idols. There are things that, you know, we spend our time hoping for and working at and, you know, and there's no other way to describe that as, as an idol. I mean, it's something we put time and energy and effort into doing and we'd like to do it well and certainly we'd like to be successful at doing it and, and that's fine. <laughs> Be successful at doing it. I hope you're successful at doing it. If God's people were always successful because God was in front, the world would be a totally different place. But that's the first commandment. You know, and it's, it's, it's really pretty straightforward. It doesn't take a whole lot of digging to find out what that commandment says. Um, but you have to understand that there is a tangible, real-life enemy out there that is going to twist everything the Lord says, is going to whisper in your ear, oh, you shouldn't be doing that, or you, you, know, you shouldn't be doing this, or you should be donating more. Or just realize it's out there. And just realizing there's somebody out there not working for you is a big it's, deal. It's like that Jehovah Witness that came to my door and told me that the American flag was an idol. Right. And talked like it was a sin. Well, yeah, and that's absolutely not true. It could be. If it yeah, was, exactly. if it was the, if it was the thing before God, right. it would absolutely be an idol. He made it sound like you can't have anything. Yeah, we'll see, and that's what I'm talking about. It's these every different group has all these different things, and that's why there's all these different groups. Is they get off on a tangent somewhere, and they put things, you know, out there that they consider to be important. And my question has always been, you know, to myself, and often, you know, to many of you people that are here. Don't they read the Bible? And I sort of say it tongue-in-cheek, but sort of not, because it's pretty clear 
that the Bible doesn't say that. They say that. You know, the rabbis say there's 613 laws. Okay, I believe that. There's 613. But what about the 400 they didn't mention? You know, I mean, we we do what we want to do. And I don't care if you're Catholic or Jewish or Jehovah or Presbyterian or whatever. We do stuff that if you look in the Bible, it's like, well, I don't think the Bible told us to do that. So my question is always, well, why do you do it then? Well, that's what we do at our church. Well, stop. Just stop it. Read the Bible. And if that causes the pastor to be mad at you and, you know, hey, are you going to stick with the Bible? Or are you going to stick with anything? The pastor, the church, the, you know, whatever. I mean, stick with the Bible. Read it and find out. So, okay. Exodus, the next one in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4 through 6 says, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath, beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them, for I am the Lord, or I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting inequity upon the fathers of the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them, and the Jews read that as thousands of generations, that love me and keep my commandments. So this, again, I have an idol wall, right? I have all these crosses that people have brought me from all over the world when they go places. Idols? I don't bow down and worship them. They, they are reminders to me. They don't replace God. They're reminders to me, well, of the people who have brought them, certainly, of, you know, God's sacrifice. I don't worship them. I don't thank. I guess we'll find out, you know, when I get there, if that was maybe a bad call. But I enjoy knowing there's a story behind each one of those. In addition to the story of our Savior dying for us. So to me, it's, it's not an idol. And that's, you know, I recognize that's the excuse every one of them uses. I look at, no offense, some of my Catholic brothers, not so much in this country, but in other countries, they always have a huge depiction of this Jesus cat on a cross, and they will often, uh, you know, kiss his feet or make offerings to it. They always bow and genuflect anytime any, well, how do you see that as not an idol? They are bowing down to this carved image. Do they know what Yeshua looked like? I doubt it. Even if they did, would you carve an image like that and give it the reverence that you give it? And you ask Catholics why they do that, and they don't consider it an idol. Well, is it an idol? I don't know. I mean, to me, it would be an idol. If they're bowing down to it and genuflecting in front of it and they have to stop and curtsy or whatever it is that they do, to me, that's bowing down. In a way, it's, it's like they're not accepting the fact that Christ is risen. Well, yeah. He's always dead in the Catholic Church. Yeah, he's always on that cross. You've never, you never seen empty cross. Yeah, and it's the same with the little crucifix. Yeah. I saw a Saturday Night Live one who they were making fun of people who wore the crucifix with the little man attached to it. 
and you know it was it was irreverent and funny, but it had a point. Is the Savior isn't dead. He's not on that cross anymore. He's alive. He's not a baby. He's alive. Why is why and not just Catholics, but Lutheran churches and Methodist churches? Why is he still nailed to the cross? Why do you do all this stuff that could easily be confused with idol worship? It says. You shall not make any graven image or likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Okay, well, that if, if it stopped right there, that would be bad. Because in Santa Barbara, we've got the three famous dolphin, you know, and you go into the harbor, you know. But it goes on. It says, thou shalt not bow down to them or serve them. Well, nobody bows down to the bottom statue of the three dolphins in Santa Barbara we take pictures of. It's not an idol, it's an artwork. It's a destination. But there are, I mean, the Muslims are classic for this. They've got the, you know, the little meteorite rock and they have to, you know, throw rocks at the wadi and all this stuff. There's, there are these things that they do bow down to. Catholics do the same thing to some degree. There's a number of, and my question is always, well, did you read the Bible? I mean, the Bible says, call no man father, but your father in heaven. What do you call a Catholic race? A father? Why? Did they not read? Is it blacked out? I mean, I have a Catholic Bible. It is not blacked out. Their Bible reads the same way mine does, and it has all the extra books, all the Apocrypha and all the historical stuff. It's the same book. What do you do when you're a Catholic and you read calling a man father, but a father who's in heaven? Do you even think about it? I don't know. What do you do when you read have no graven images, no carved idols that you do worship to, that you bow down to? I don't know. They do it with the Virgin Mary. Oh, they do a lot of stuff. You know, and all my good Catholic friends, they, they're always off on... Uh, pilgrimages to see the Lady of Fatima and all, you know, and what do they do? It's not like a tourist trap. They go there and they worship. Well, that's bad. So it says, do not bow down or worship. And the, the word that you're not supposed to bow down and worship is pesel, and it means idol. So you're not supposed to bow down and worship an idol. Can we get you something to drink? Sorry. <laughs> <clears throat> I would suggest um, you're at the Valar and that you've just witnessed this incredible concert and everybody's up and applauding and, you know, bravoing and all that stuff. I don't think that's an idol. I think this word pesel is, is an idol. It's something that's, that you worship like God. And if you find yourself in a place where you're doing that, I don't know. You're not supposed to do that. Um, but a numerical majority of people who call themselves Christians do. So... 
I don't know. And if you're at a church that has a carved image of Jesus that you, you know, pay homage to, kiss his feet, genuflect in front of, whatever, and you mention this, chances are you're the one who's in trouble. You're the one who's cast out. You're the troublemaker. And you say, well, did you read the Bible? I mean, how do you read this? Well, that's not what it says at all. Okay, maybe not. But that's what it seems to say to me. Uh, it says, for I am a jealous God. Don't do these things. Don't worship idols because I am a jealous God. I do not deal with that. Well, the word is kanan. It's not really jealous. It's the, the literal meaning of the word is a nest, a bird's nest. I am not zealous or I am a zealous God in the same way that a mama bird sitting on her eggs, it doesn't matter how big the predator is or how often the attack comes, this mama bird is gonna defend that egg at all costs. That's this word, it's zealous. I am a zealous God. I am not putting up with this. Jealous in English means something a little different. It really means a zealous God and he will defend his position no matter what. So are you going to argue with your local priest or are you going to argue with the Lord of all creation? And I suggest, as a general rule of thumb, you'd be better off to avoid the whole idolatry thing. He looks at your heart and if your heart is, you know, is good, he can explain it to you on the way up. That's fine. But I think there are so many people who call themselves Christians who when confronted with what the Bible actually says immediately turn on the Bible or the person bringing that information to them rather than just stopping and thinking about it for a minute. And again, that's always what I would ask you guys to do because I'm, you know, who am I? I'm, I'm a blind guy. If you need blinds, call me. I know about blinds. Really, I know about motorized blinds. I don't know about God. What I know about God is stuff that I've researched and studied and tried to work out, and what I share with you is what I believe to be true. But if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And you guys shouldn't be sucked into my little delusion. So I would always ask you to just stop and look and see what the Bible says and what do you make of that? How do you deal with that? and look at what the words mean and what you know. do whatever you need to do. But it says, um, the end of this verse is in showing mercy to thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. <clears throat> in English, that's what it says. Uh, it's this word, let's see. We've talked about this before. The word shamar is the word that's often translated as to keep, and it means to protect or to guard. So these, these people at the end of verse 3, the ones who are keeping, who are protecting his instructions, they're not going with the flow. My pastor says it's okay to do this. My PE teacher said that was fine. I read on a bumper sticker, this is what we should do. Those aren't the people God's talking about. He's talking about the people that are actually knowledgeable of what he said and work to protect that, to guard that. 
We didn't just go with the flow because it was easy. We're guarding his stuff. And his instructions uh, are that those are the people that will receive his chesed. And that's that word that's often translated as love or mercy. It's chesed. It's uh, this agape love. It's it, if, if you want God to feel that way about you, to display his chesed to you, then you need to protect his commandments, his word, his instructions. These things that we're talking about. Um, so sometimes in today's church environment, it's hard. At Christmas time, you'll see Christmas trees. And if you've read Jeremiah, you know that's, that's, that's how they identify a pagan. Why is that at a, at, a, at a Christian church? It shouldn't be. Why do you have a, a carved image of some guy you purport to be the Messiah that you make offerings to, whatever? I mean, wh why, why do we do any? And it's easy to pick on Muslims and Catholics and you know, some of these loosey-goosey groups. But we all do that. We all have things that we believe that are not how the Bible writes. I mean, that's not what it says. And we need to be open to the possibility that uh, we don't actually know it all, that there could be more that the Lord is trying to teach us, that we shouldn't get locked into something because my church or my father or my cousin or whatever said that's the way we do it we should look at this on our own because when we're standing in front of the lord and he says hey what about that whole idol worship thing what's going to be your response oh they told me it was okay well that doesn't fly because the guy who told you it's okay is not standing there next to you he's not taking the bullet for you we all stand in front of the lord by ourselves so it behooves us to be ready when he asked those questions. All right, let me just skip ahead a little bit. The next instruction is in Exodus chapter 20, verse seven. It says, thou shalt not take the Lord thy God, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. The Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. And of course, we all know that's when, you know, I hit my head underneath the, the sink and shout out uh, that I wish God to damn something. Um, namely my plumbing. That's got to be what this is about, right? That's what everybody says. And of course, it's got nothing to do with that. Uh, the, this word, the name of the Lord God, the word is shim. And it, it's, uh, it literally means breath. It's the word for character or authority. So what he's saying is, uh, thou shalt not take the authority of the Lord thy God in vain. And the word um, vain is, uh, means it's shav, it means a number of things, desolate. It's translated in Deuteronomy 5.20 as evil. So we should not take the authority of the Lord our God as evil or as desolate or when, when we don't trust that the things that the Lord is saying are true and correct. When we when we read a, a, a an instruction or a, a commandment, and we think to ourselves, "Oh, well, that, that's not right," 
you know, that, that's crazy. That's just a different culture. When we, when we take the authority of God and say it's evil, that's what they're talking about. For he will not hold him guiltless who takes his authority in vain or thinks his authority is evil. How many people out there of one particular political party believe that the God that we follow is, is more evil than good? They've distanced themselves from him because they think they can get more votes without him than with him. And that's probably true because most of the people who follow him vote on the other side. But for 16 years, they've tried to pull him out of the plank of the Democratic Party. And the backlash is so strong, they have to put him back in. Well, this year, there was no backlash. He's not there anymore. They took God out. They've taken his name in vain. They've ta they, they, his authority is evil. And that's what God is saying when we discount his commandments. When, when he says something like, don't make any graven idols and bow down to it, and we just go ahead and do it anyway, we are destroying the authority of God. We have, we, we've, we've broken this commandment as well. So... Exactly, exactly. So this whole idea of, uh, you know, we think this commandment is about curse words. And that's just a smokescreen, I'm concerned, by the... E now, I'm not saying you should go out there and, you know, have God damn everything that doesn't go right for you, although, you know, sometimes it just needs to be damned, but... Um, the smokescreen is to take our focus off what the thing really says. Get us focused on trying to clean up our language and be that kind of person and totally miss that it's not about that at all. It's about his authority. And once you get to the point where you're usurping his authority, you're telling him which commandments you're going to like and which ones you're going to not like, what you will do and what you won't do. Oh, I, that, that's not culturally smart. We're not going to do that then you've counted his authority as evil. And he says, don't do that. So he's the, you know, he, and he starts up by saying, he's the God that brought us out of bondage. He's the one that gave us the freedom of the promised land. He's the one who shows his love and mercy to thousands of generations who protect his words and follow him. We're not to bow down to idols. He's our God. So how do we show thanks? Exodus 20 Verses 8 through 11, it says, Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Six days shalt thy labor and do thy work, but on the seventh day it is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. And in it thou shalt not do any work, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor the cattle, nor the stranger within the gates. For in six days the Lord has made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and all that is in them. And he rested on the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Hallowed it. Um, and, you know, we can go through this. This one's one of these that's pretty obvious. The only real debate is which day is the seventh day. And I would remind you that all of Yeshua's life as a human, all of the time before and all of the disciples after knew that the Sabbath was what we call Saturday. But the Roman Catholic Church came in and changed it to Sunday in 324 AD, because that was the day the Lord was raised from the dead. That's the Lord's day. 
That's, that's the excuse. The reality is probably just like all this other stuff. The enemy needs to change everything in the Bible. They need to take your focus off what God says and put it back on something else. And if we can make, you know, and, and Constantine himself talked about the filthy, dirty Jews and how they weren't going to tell him how to worship and they weren't going to let him determine when the holidays were and when the holy days were. And so he changed Passover. He changed, uh, or he changed uh, tabernacles. He changed all of the, and he changed the day of worship. So we're left in the same boat again. Well, everybody goes to church on Sunday. And I mean, that's the day the Lord raised. And does it really matter? Because we still take a day. Well, I suggest it does matter because he told you specifically. And Jesus himself lived that way. All the disciples lived that way. Everybody before and after until Constantine lived that way. They all recognized that Saturday was the day of worship. And Daniel tells us, that at the end, in this last dispensation, the enemy will come and try to change the times and the seasons. He will try to change everything, move all the, 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 the holy days, move all the uh, feasts, and, because he wants to take your focus off where God is and put it where he's not. God said thousands of years ago, I will meet you on this day, on the 14th of Nisan. I will meet you uh, you know, he's got seven feasts that are on specific days. I will meet you on the Sabbath. And we choose to show up on whatever day we want to show up and expect him to be there. And I'll tell you what, he's not there. Good things happen and God is alive and living and he watches over us. But imagine what it would be like if we actually met him when and where he asked. Things would be different. How does it matter? Why does it matter to us? If we work on a Saturday or a Sunday, worship on a Saturday, it shouldn't. We should just do what the Lord asks, what the Bible says. Um, it's interesting, Isaiah 66, verse 22 and 23, it says, For as the new heavens and the new earth, which are not here yet, I will make and shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so that your seed and your name shall remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. Even after the end of days, worship is on the Sabbath. It's on Saturday. It's on the day of rest. So how do we, how do we negotiate? Well, all the churches meet on Sundays. We need to follow the Lord and see what, you know, what he has to say. Uh, this word translated as work, and I just will end on this, is, is malak. And it's uh, one of maybe a half a dozen, maybe more words in Hebrew that are translated as work in English. But this word is unusual. Uh, Strong's calls it a deputyship, that is a ministry or employment. It's the kind of work, this is what you do for a living. This is how you make your living. This is the money that you make. We, we do work all the time, you know, work on the house, you work shoveling the snow, you work making cookies, you, but none of that is how we make our living. What you're prohibited from doing on the Sabbath is the kind of work that you do to make a living. If you make money at it, if that's the deputyship, or if it's your ministry, if that's what you do, don't do it on the Sabbath. <clears throat> You should spend that day in repose, it says. 
Now, it's interesting that this verse, and nowhere else in Scripture does it add to this, it does not say you're supposed to spend the day focused on the Lord. It just says don't make money that day. And it seems to be more literally about rest, because I guess the idea is if you're resting, you, you can think about the things of the Lord. When you're out working, there's stuff going through your mind a thousand miles an hour because you've got to deal with all this stuff that's going on. And you throw in a couple of prayers now and then you think about the Lord. Maybe you're listening to some worship music or you've you know, got a sermon on or something. But you're still, you're fo- you have to be focused on doing your job because God wants you to be a good and useful employee. He wants you to do the best because you're representing him. God's out in front of you. And if that's what you do for a living, do it well. Do it the best way you can. But on Saturday, come home and relax. Rest. And if you're resting, you're going to think about God. And it doesn't mean you can't go work on the car or, or, you know, it just means do something different. Get out of that zone. Let your mind rejoice. Let it renew. And you're bound to think about the things of the Lord. You're going to think about how good he was to you that week or how much you need him that week. You know, maybe it's been a week like you've had. You know, you need the Lord. And it's not necessarily, it's been a great week, but he's been there with you and that is great. So, um, as you consider some of these things, again, my, and we'll go through this every week until we get all the people here and they all agree that most of these commandments are not about them. They're about us. We need to look at them in terms of our hearts. It doesn't matter if we have to honor parents that are not honorable. It doesn't, because we're not honoring them. It's, we're honoring God with our lives. It, none of this stuff matters. If you're concerned about Uh, worshiping idols, perhaps at your church, perhaps at whatever. I mean, just think about it. That's, That's the whole idea, is look at these things in terms of us, each of these commandments that we'll be talking to. How does that affect my life? What's God looking for me to do? How is that going to change my life? How is it going to lead me closer to God? And look at them in the terms of um, how does that make me more useful to the Lord? And just by having a soft heart will make us more useful for the Lord. Am I zealous for the things of God? Am I willing to protect his word? Do I even know what his word says? You know, just look at this stuff. And I am not God. I'm not God's uh, right-hand man. I'm not, you know, on, on the hierarchy of God's guys. I'm down probably 5 billion people, maybe more. But I'm saying it's useful to spend some time just examining what you think you know against what the Bible is trying to teach you. Don't get locked into the stuff that we've been taught ever since we've been taught because sometimes it may not be right or it may not be the most useful thing. And the time is coming when God is going to use people in you know, whatever events are coming soon, he's going to need people who actually will stop and look at what the Bible says. And this is, as far as I'm concerned, this is an opportunity like has never been in all of the history of, of time. You know, people say, oh, what? if you could come back, if you could live at any time in, 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 on earth, when would you live? And a lot of people say, oh, at the time of Jesus, because that would be awesome. You know, if you happen to live in Jerusalem, knowing my luck, I'd get stuck in you know, Zimbabwe or something. 
I always answer when he comes back the second time. That's when I want to be there. And it's going to be ugly, and there will be stuff going on, and, but that's where the action is. And I think that's where the field is ripe unto harvest. And it's work to me, I think, it's worthwhile to understand what he says. So anyway, there's your second edition of the Torah.